one of the forms of God's judgment over man is him giving man over to their own judgment. The worst type of judgment is for him to give man over to his own judgment, a reprobate mind. And this is the days of the judges in 2024, where there was no king and the people did what was ever right in their own eyes. You're witnessing that. You recognize the times you're living in. What happens is man's rule, apart from God's rules, will always be unruly. The way man rules, his authority, apart from God's rules, God's principles, God's creative order, God's law, God's statutes, God's way, will always be unruly. Tis true, man's rule, his authority, apart from God's rules, the principles of God, will always be unruly, will lead to a form of chaos. Welcome to Landmark. My name's Matthew Mayer, one of the ministers. I have the honor of preaching and teaching the word on Wednesday evenings. If you've been with us for some time, you're aware that as the Lord leads and guides, we are presenting the scriptures and looking at some of the signs of the times. This will be the fifth installment in that very unique mini-series. If we're not in the signs of the times, we, of course, are looking at the book of Psalms. And Lord willing, we will pick up where we left off in the book of Psalms next Wednesday. I believe it's Psalm chapter, who knows, four, right? We are four chapters in. But before we get there, we're going to deal with 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And my assignment tonight is to profile evil. But not just profile evil, I also believe the other side of profiling evil people is making sure we have the profile of what it means to be gospel people. This section of scripture for me is actually a tutorial to what it means to be a Christian. And you'll see what I mean by that in a second. Right before Paul, who's writing a letter, the second epistle to Timothy, the end of chapter two, he lays out to young Timothy what it means to be a Christian minister. Talks about pursuing righteousness and peace and joy Pursue love, talks about dealing with opposition gently, but also correcting those who are in error. And then he says, perchance that God would extend repentance to them and that their senses, their spiritual senses, which were dull because of sin, would be heightened or made alive. That's what he's saying to Timothy. And then right away, he begins to present some of the profiles of the people in the latter times. Verses one through five will be those verses. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, 
without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Is anybody dizzy after reading those profiles? Now, notice the Spirit here forewarns the church of perilous times. Why would the Spirit forewarn us? Well, I believe it's in order to forearm us. And the Spirit of God forearms us or prepares us with pertinent truth, truth that is applicable to the times. Believers have present truth that helps them navigate their times or the world they live in. Why Bible prophecy? Well, it's not to scare. Bible prophecy is to prepare. All right, there's a huge difference. You'd be surprised that a lot of churches will not touch Bible prophecy with a 10-foot pole. But 25% of the Word of God, the Bible, is prophetic. And many of the prophecies that deal with the second coming of Christ are yet to be fulfilled. 100% of the prophecies dealing with the first coming of Christ have been perfectly fulfilled. Over 300, that number might vary depending on how many prophecies that are speaking of the same event that Jesus fulfilled, whether they're counted once or twice, but you get the point. There are over 800 prophecies that deal with the second coming of Christ and or God's relationship to Israel. I will repeat, the Spirit of God forewarns us of these perilous times so as to forearm us with pertinent truth. Now get this, in these perilous times, we are to be the opposite of the people of the times. In these very troubling times, we are to be the opposite of the people of the times. We are not a people of the times, we are a people of truth, ready for this? For the times. The church is made up of the people of God, the people of truth for the times. It's why you are alive. Many, of course, would say, I wonder what it would be like to live during Bible times, completely missing the spiritual reality that they're living in Bible times. We call them signs of the times because Jesus actually used that phrase. And he did so in explaining how the religious elite were able to discern the weather. But they didn't have the spiritual insight to discern the signs of the times. Take that phrase and flip it around. Because I'm telling you, church, you are living in the times of the signs. These signs are converging. And as we look at the profile of evil, I'm asking you to consider, and I'll do my best to present the opposite of the profile of evil and make sure we all understand the profile of gospel people. Now, the final thing that Paul ends this long list of descriptions with is by saying, from such people turn away. From such people do an about face. 
when he makes mention of turning away, he's not talking about turning away from evil as much as he's talking about abhorring evil. There's a huge difference. Now, let me please explain it a little bit further. Turning away from such people is not about ignoring the evil that's happening in our world and in these people. Turning away from these people is about abhorring, detesting evil. Evil is not an abstract idea. Evil is not subjected to our definition of evil. Evil is defined by the absence of good as God defines good. And like a vacuum, evil and darkness will fill the void where good and where God is not. So we need to have a heart that sees that people are in bondage to sin. Well, at the same time, the church and the Christian never affirm unrighteousness. Think about Romans chapter 12, verse 21. At the end of a really dynamic chapter in the book of Romans, let love be without hypocrisy. That idea behind hypocrisy was two-faced. Would our love be a reflection of one face? Would our love be a reflection of Jesus Christ? Would we fine-tune the balance between love and truth? And it's a very hard thing to do. But I believe with all my heart, if we're vulnerable and transparent with our God when we come to him and we allow his love to rapture our hearts based on his love for us, we then find the proper definition for love. And the way he loved me and the way he disciplines me and the way he deals with me unconditionally, we just sang a hymn about great is his faithfulness. Faithfulness, ready? To love me where I am, but faithful enough to not leave me the way I am. I want to take that pure love and apply it to my life and those that are attached to me. So I love without hypocrisy. The very next thing that he says in Romans 12, 9 is abhor what is evil. It means to detest. What is evil? Despise what is evil. Well, at the same time, the positive command, cling to what is good. Cleave to what is good. Adhere to what is good. Right away, again, when you see good and evil in the Bible, God has defined those. They're not subjective. They're not open to human interpretation. The divine interpretation based on God's moral law helps us understand what is good and what is evil. And the spirit of God that lives inside of us, the spirit of truth, helps guide us in discernment. Read Hebrews 5, verses 12 to 14 on your own time, and you'll discover those that cannot discern the difference between good and evil are still sucking the bottle of milk. And the passage is in a, a charge that we would move to meat so that by the meat of God's word are, ready? Our senses would be exercised or sharpened or heightened so as to discern good from evil. I remember getting into an argument, in essence, with somebody about, we can't tell the difference between good and evil. 
My entire biblical argument was that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. He is the lie detector. That's why John would write, you ready for this? Test the spirits and make sure they are of God. Why would he say that to the church and the believer if we didn't have the ability or the spiritual antennae to discern good from evil? All right. In order to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good, of course, we have to have the discernment to know the difference between the two. Second Timothy chapter three, back at verse one. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. It's where we get the word eschatology from, the word last here and days, the study of last things. The idea behind eschatology isn't just the last days, which are from the time Jesus came and ascended and the time he will return. Those are the last days. But there's something that the scriptures are cluing us into about the latter times of the last days or the 12th hour. And you'll know what I mean by that. So while we're in the last day, we're in the 12th hour. It's getting late. The last days will be marked by perilous times. This word is wild, pun intended. The word perilous means raging. It means troubling. It means rebelling. Perilous in Greek literature was often used to describe wild animals and the unforgiving force of the raging sea. That's the word here. The only time it's applied other than here in 2 Timothy in the New Testament is in describing the two demon-possessed men in Matthew chapter 8. The word means exceedingly fierce. And the people were unwilling to walk down the way or the path where the two demonic men were said to be. Perilous, violent, dangerous. This is what the Spirit, through Paul, is telling us. These signs of the times are more than a generalization of the pulse of the world. We've done that, right? Matthew 24, as Jesus lays out some of the signs of the times that can be traced, that bleed into the end of days. The first four installments in this mini-series have kind of dealt with the pulse of the world, the pulse of the world. This section is going to show us the profile of the people of the world. So it's a little bit different. We're not talking about global governments tonight. We're not talking about wars and rumors of wars tonight. We're not talking about pestilences tonight. We're talking about the people and their profile during these times. So what are we gonna do? We're gonna do what every Bible-believing Christian should do. Use the word of God to scripturally profile these people. Now, in law enforcement, there's something that's called criminally profiling people. And multiple law enforcement agencies use this investigative strategy to identify likely suspects. And what they do is they trace behaviors and patterns and characteristics they look at past crimes and they're able to actually look at new criminals and perhaps pit that new criminal based on his 
present behavior on past crimes? Are you understanding how the word of God doesn't just tell us what's going to happen? The word of God tells us what always happens. It's like we're in this grand play and each of us have a role to play. And I've said before, and I'll say it again, you need to know your lines. You need to know the script. I said in one sermon not long ago, Christianity is never neutral. And I really thought about that after I said it. It's true. We're either moving forward and progressing in our faith, or we are digressing and what is called backsliding in our faith. But it's not just for Christianity. There's no no neutrality in life. Evil doesn't stay neutral. Evil's not passive. Evil does not stop itself. So regardless of where you take your stand, whether the people of the world or the people of the word, both are moving. What are these people like verse two. Actually, I'm telling you, I did something different tonight. Instead of going verse by verse, I actually looked at the descriptions of these people in these perilous times, and I began to categorize the likeness of the description I put in the same line, just so I can teach it in one fell swoop and then move on. You'll notice the verses are on the screen, but you might notice they're out of order. So I coupled in the first few verses the love that is misplaced. Verse two and verse four. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. And I jumped to verse four and I pulled out lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What I noticed here was what marks the people of these last days is a perverted love, a misdirected love, a love for self. It's self-centered, it's self-indulged, it's conditional. And it's conditioned based on what they can get out of the relationship. Psychology has a term to describe these people. They're narcissists. But the Bible has a better term to describe these people. They're arrogant. They're profoundly arrogant. They are people who love themselves. Their entire world they live in revolves around them. The center of gravity for these types of people is themselves. Do you know them? I'll be the first to say before Christ, that was me. My favorite pronouns to apply to myself were me, myself, and I. The actually only appropriate pronouns to apply to oneself. Lovers of money. This is love of the material. In the first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, And people get this wrong. Have you ever heard somebody say, money's the root of all evil? No, it's the love of money, which is the baseline or foundation that produces a lot of evil. It's an obsession, a desire for the material world. And then lovers of pleasure, lovers of what is sensual, This is what John said of this love. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not 
not in them. Which means there's a love that is polluted. Which is interesting because the world wants you to believe that love is love. I think of Hollywood and celebrities and our favorite athletes. Famous, many of which for loving themselves. And sadly, we esteem the world. And Jesus said, what is esteemed by the world is detestable to God. Notice, all of these loves are misplaced. Misplaced love is disgraced love. In all of our lives, if we misplace our love, it is eventually going to be disgraced love. So that's the profile of evil. How about the profile of the gospel? We're not called to love ourselves in the sense that we're called to deny ourselves. Proper love of self first begins with the love that God gives me. Once I understand how God loves me, I then can take that love, which has nothing to do with me, and apply it to those around me. Love your neighbor as you have a proper love of yourself. This is not a selfish, sensual love of self. This is a self-sacrificial love that is willing to see your needs over my needs. So the Christian is called to have their love grow. As the world's love grows cold and it's growing colder, the Christian's love is to grow bolder. Your love for Jesus should be growing bolder and brighter in these days. I mean, what would make the light and love of Jesus shine ever brighter? I'll tell you, a world that's getting darker. The darker the world is, the brighter our love and light should be. And I know it's a challenge. I began this sermon by saying there's a tension between love and truth. We boast in the cross as Christians. We humble ourselves in Christ as Christians. We have a proper estimation of self as Christians, which is the complete opposite. You ready? We're jumping back in to the profile of evil to verse two and verse four again. Boasters, proud, haughty. I thought those three were a perfect tripod. The way I wrote it in my notes was that boasting is with the mouth. Being proud is often in heart and haughty could be described in the eyes, someone's countenance. The actual application of boasters here is these people are imposters. When I saw that definition in the Greek, I'm like, wow, that's interesting. No, they inflame and exaggerate everything. Not only who they are, what they do for a living, how much money they make, they inflame and exaggerate everything. Do you know those people? You know Johnny One Upper? You tell Johnny you made... You've been to the moon. John is like, so what? I've been on the sun. So what? <laughs> it's like you can't tell people anything in your life without them trying to one-up you. Well, this idea behind boasting is, ha- is one of great exaggeration. Boasting big things with the mouth. An overinflation of self. How about being proud? Being proud or having pride is often in the heart. The Proverbs speak a lot about pride. 
Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. The word for haughty is actually filled with smoke. I was like, wow, that's an interesting definition. To be haughty is to be filled with smoke? Like something's on fire? Where's that fire coming from? Wow, the soul is set ablaze by hell and the soul then is filled with smoke and that life is haughty and the countenance of the haughty is defiant. We're living in the times where there's a loud defiant defiance and a lewd arrogance that marks everything. So much so in our day and age that the confession of sin has been long replaced by the celebration of sin. Where we have an entire month dedicated to loud defiance and lewd arrogance. And out of all the adjectives to describe a movement, I know one I would not choose. Pride. You see, in a world that celebrates Pride Month and proud mouths, let us be marked by humility and integrity. How about that? Integrity, my definition, even though the word means wholeness and wholesomeness, wholeness, no fractures, and wholesomeness, healthy. My definition is integrity does what's righteous regardless of the consequence, just like that. Regardless of who's watching, regardless, young ones, of the peer pressure, regardless of what's trending, regardless of the fads of our day, integrity in Christ does what's righteous regardless of the consequence. Humility. The Bible has a lot to say about the humble. James chapter four, verses six to eight, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, this is God, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. This was fascinating to me. The more we draw near to God, and the more he draws near to us, the more we humble ourselves in his sight, the more he gives his gracious favor unto us. The more we are in God's proximity, the more we want to cleanse our hands of sin. The more we want to purify our hearts, which according to the text, if my heart is pure, I have singleness of heart, then I have singleness of mind. If my heart is not pure, I have two minds. I am divided. It's not rocket science. If we draw close to Christ in this church, in this fellowship, and he draws close to us and we experience his presence, we are going to see an all of God return and the right estimation of his holiness, where people are recognizing repentance is not a one and done deal. Repentance is a daily lifestyle where I change my mind because my mind is divided. I live in a divided world. And the more I lend my mind, to the way of the world, the more divided I am. And that's why I need to lend my mind to the word. And when I draw near to the Lord and he draws near to me, there's a cleansing that occurs from the inside out. Is this making sense? Conversely, if the world is not drawing near to the Lord and they're actually drifting from the Lord, 
And as they keep drifting, they become detached from the Lord. Follow the thread. They're not drawing close to him. He's not drawing close to them. They're drifting. They're detached. He gives them over to their sinfulness. We can profile their evil. They're not cleansing their hands. They're actually keeping their hands dirty in sin. They're not purifying their hearts. Therefore, they're going to have double minds. If they have double minds, I tell you the truth, they're going to have double tongues, which leads to the next descriptors. Verse two, verse three, verse four, and back to verse three. Blasphemers, slanderers, traitors, despisers of good. What a terrible list. Follow the thread, and that's why I put it together this way. Blasphemy is God word. Slander is man word. Being a traitor is betrayal, and you betray because you hate what's good. Let's start with blasphemers. This is the idea of mocking God. We live in a day and age, perilous times, where there's a mocking of God and it sells. How often have I told you that late night talk shows are often built on mocking God and the audience eats it up? Complete blasphemy of God. But if you could speak so recklessly against the things of God and his people, does it not make sense that you can easily slander man? Slandering man is, of course, as some would say, lying on them, kicking one's back in, defaming someone, telling lies, spreading those lies, gossiping. This is what marks the people of the last days. And of course, traitors. Interestingly, this idea behind being a traitor is one that betrays. The Greek definition is treachery, disloyalty. And I thought about the two most infamous traitors of all time. I know you know the one. Do you know the other? When we think of a traitor, we think of who? Judas and Benedict Arnold. I did my research on Benedict Arnold. Unbelievable history. He actually started out as a patriot. He fought in the American Revolution. What happened was something had made him disgruntled, whereas he decided to turncoat. He set up a meeting with the British. His plan was actually to give over one of their main American facilities at West Point. It was a pivotal location because of the Hudson Valley. Had the British been able to take over West Point and the Hudson Valley, the entire war may have turned. But they found Benedict Arnold's plan. I thought about that, but more than Benedict Arnold, I thought about Judas. Judas had betrayed the Son of God. The Bible says that he was the son of perdition. I thought about the spirit of Judas, if you will, one who would betray the things of God. I thought about Benedict Arnold, one who would betray his own country. I thought about the phrase of God and country. I thought about how we're living in a day and age where people so easily betray 
God and we're watching and witnessing people who are in the halls of Congress and the halls of government who are supposed to have the American interest at the forefront are literally betraying the American people. You're watching the Benedict Arnolds of our day. Judas lives in the church, says he follows Jesus. He's a good steward of the money. He was a deacon in essence. He was a good servant. And nobody thought that you can be that close to Jesus coming every Wednesday, every Sunday, being a part of the church, having fellowship with other disciples. And there's something inside of Judas. We know he gave himself over to Satan and he so easily with a kiss. This is a, a human act of love or compassion or acceptance, a kiss. And Judas took that which was supposed to be for friends and he turned it into something done by an enemy. I search my own heart when I think about the spirit of Judas and how one can so easily betray the things of God. Being in comparison to a Benedict Arnold is just a different reality. Nonetheless, we're watching both unfold in our day and age. And of course, that's because they're despisers of good. These people betray because they despise. They hate what they should be loving. They love what they should be hating. They are the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter five, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. There's a passage in John chapter three. John three is a famous chapter. Why? Because John three sixteen is the most famous Bible verse. Most people don't know that after John three sixteen and three seventeen, there's an indictment on all humanity. And he talks about condemnation. Jesus talks about condemnation. And the only way to not have condemnation is to be in the sun. That's what he says. He said, if you're not in the sun, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, condemnation is on you right now. That's what he says. Well, what's condemnation? Jesus says this. This is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Did you catch that? What's the condemnation that has come upon the world? That men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. When the light abruptly shines, it's natural to squint or cover your eyes. When the light floods into a dark room, it's it's natural to be caught off guard by the light. But the more that you stay in the light, church, get this, your eyes begin to adjust to the light. But the more that you move from the light into the darkness, the more abrupt light will be, which is why people don't want to be around preaching that is founded on truth and love because they feel as if their lifestyle or the way they're living 
They feel as if you've offended them. It's like picking up that rock and you see all those bugs go scurrying. That's good preaching. Good preaching is holding forth the word of light and watching people squirmish. And squ- I don't know who said it. It'll probably show up in a sermon in the future. The word of God should bring affliction to those who are comfortable and it should bring comfort to those who are afflicted. You can preach the same word and somebody who's in an affliction can be comforted by it and somebody who's very comfortable in their lifestyle is afflicted by it. (laughs) Here's my biblical realism. When you see blasphemy, Godward, slander, manward, traitors, betrayers, and those that hate good. I see a nation where there is no fear of God nor faith in what's good becoming a nation that is soon gone. I think it's hard to see because we're in the midst of it. It's easy to read the history books. It's easy to say, what were they thinking? What were they thinking in Nazi Germany? What was the church doing? Where were the Christians? Where were the voices of truth? It's easy to say that from a distance and read it in the history books. And yet we're living in times that are being conditioned. That are le- it always leads to that. History only repeats itself. The only difference is whether or not a church is going to stand in the gap. There needs to be those that are on their hands and feet below the wall, repenting on behalf of the sins of the people like Daniel. There needs to be those like Nehemiah on the wall with a hammer and a tool and a sword And he's not coming off that wall, regardless of the critics below him who are telling him to come down and let's negotiate. He's up there. He's building. We need the Esthers who are willing to go before the king and intercede on behalf of the people. We need the Jeremiah's who are willing to stand on top of the wall and look out on the horizon and see that Babylon is coming. You understanding what I'm saying? Back to verse two, because it says one of the markers of these perilous times is people will be disobedient to parents. What happens when there's an utter defiance of the parental authorities, God has established the family. It's a microcosm of his kingdom. It's why he identifies the church as a family. Your own family unit with two parents has an authority over your children. When it says they're disobedient, it's not the fact that they're just defiant to their parents. The undergirding reality is that they're defiant to all authority. If they're going to be defiant and disobedient to parents, they're going to be defiant and disobedient to the law. All of the universe is operative on laws, God's laws. And the fact that honoring mom and dad 
in the 10 commandments, it's the fifth commandment. Did you know it rolls over into the New Testament and Paul would write, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. What does that even mean? He qualifies it. That it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Now, is that a guarantee? Well, no, nothing in life is a guarantee. But what is being said is that there is a unique promise that is granted to children of all ages who have a honor for their parental authorities, for mom and dad. So much so that God will promise that he'll bless that life, not just with, I'll say, duration, not longevity. It's something so much deeper. It's like the blessing of experiencing the fullness of life. This is that idea here. We're also not only living in a day where there's disobedience to parents. Now, this is where I'm kind of going out of the text because I see a spirit where there are people who are teaching it's okay to defy the parents. School boards are made up of people who are so easily willing to defy the parents of the children they are only in their position to protect in the first place. You have people in government, bills that are being snuck to the floor and being signed in that are lowering the age of consent. In New Jersey, recently, going from 16 to 13, that a 13-year-old, ready, can make their own decision to see a therapist or a counselor or a doctor, and none of those experts, quote unquote, have to tell their parents that Johnny wants to cut off his Johnny. And you're saying, I can't believe he said that. And I'm saying, I can't believe more people aren't saying that. There is a spirit from hell that has been unleashed. Now, stop. Because if there are those that are blaspheming God, I want to be a Christian who is praising God. If there are those who are slandering man and lying, I want to be one who tells the truth. If there are those who are betraying and they're traitors, I want to be loyal to the cause of Christ. If there are those who are despising good, I want to be one that clings to what is good. If there are those who are disobedient to parents, I want to be a son who is obedient to my parents. And of course, verses two and three, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving. I want to be the opposite of those. I want to be one who is thankful and grateful to my God. I want to be holy because he is holy, not holier than thou, holy for thou. I want to be loving and of course, I want to be forgiving because Christ forgave me. I want to be one who forgives. Now, the opposite is, of course, what we just read. There are those who are unthankful. It means they're ungrateful. They're rude. Can I tell you the truth? I had the honor of not only speaking in schools in 2009. I got in trouble in March of 2009. I was sentenced in January of 2010. I had the honor to go into 35 different schools in October, November, and December. And I can tell you the truth. Mind you, I had not gone to my sentencing day yet. And yet there was a different reception at the time. I'll never forget it. I'm coming in. They all knew who I was and what I did. 
and there was no forgiveness extended to me just yet. And there was still a respect in the students. I got out in 2014. I immediately went back into the public square. I was speaking at no less than 50 unique schools a year for years. And I can tell you from 2014 to date, I've seen an erosion and a rudeness in these high schools that I can't even fathom. A rudeness while a guest speaker is presenting and talking and they're carrying on, they're cursing, they're disrespectful to the teacher. And I'm watching this. I don't even enjoy going into that public square anymore. Unthankful, unholy. A video surfaced, it probably happened a couple years ago. It looked like it happened this year, but I think it happened a couple years ago. A church celebrating Super Bowl, a football game. And they came out, referee outfits and whatever teams were playing. And one of their staff members, you know, they, they put the Bible down like it was a football and they kicked it. And I'm watching that, the crowd's laughing, ha ha he, and I'm going, wow. Inmates in prison would not even touch the Bible because they knew there was a holiness to it. It was the only book in the entire prison that people just had a reverence for. And you got a church unholy, unloving. It means no natural affection to family. Interesting because the word is like out of all the relationships in the world, there should be a natural affection for at least your family. Reading about parents killing their children, children killing their parents. You're seeing what Jesus said would happen, the love of many would grow cold and the love of the Christian should grow bold. Unforgiving, amazing definition. It means without treaty. When you keep reading in the Greek concordance, irreconcilable. If you keep reading, it says, one who disregards truce. I'm like, wow, that's interesting. What are they saying here? They're saying to be unforgiving, you're not willing to enter a covenant. Forgiveness is you entering a covenant. I forgive you. I cancel your debt against me. These are people who are unforgiving. The opposite is that the Christian, now listen to me. Every one of us have been through different circumstances like a fingerprint, okay? I am not naive. I sit with people and they share their heart and their backstory and some of the things people have been through are unfathomable, horrific. That's hard. How do you forgive the one who has done that to you? I'm asking each of us to not consider what they did to you I'm asking each of us to consider what Christ has done for you. And when I think about what I don't deserve is God's forgiveness. I then am able to take what God gave me that I did not deserve and like a pipe, let it flow through me and give it to somebody else who doesn't deserve it. And what I've learned about forgiveness, to be a forgiving person, forgiveness does not mean you condone the offense. Forgiveness means you're willing to let go and let God. 
This word basically describes cancel culture. We went through the past several years where people's entire lives were just being canceled and eliminated. I think about the baker for honoring his conscience. He's still fighting the battle of turning down baking a cake because he didn't agree with the messaging. And the people were so offended, instead of just going down the street to another bakery, they decided to ruin that man's life. Now, he's a Christian, so he understands even the attempt to ruin, God is going to redeem and make much of himself through, so the Christian can't lose. But at the end of the day, you're witnessing a cancel culture without self-control. Verse three, brutal, headstrong. These aren't hard to see. Without self-control means no self-restraint. Brutal, of course, if you have no self-restraint, it leads to being savage is the word, or cruel, brutality. How do you get there? Verse four, headstrong. This idea, what is headstrong? It's not just being stubborn. It means reckless abandon. It's like people are willing to just commit themselves to whatever it is they're doing with such a reckless abandon. It's the videos you see online where people are flooding into stores and completely just tearing the phones from the outlet, grabbing TVs. They have with reckless abandon just thrown themselves into complete pandemonium and evil. These are the days we are living in. No self-control. The Christian should be one who is self-controlled. Did you know that's a fruit of the Spirit? Did you know that? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and the Spirit in our lives helps control self. Another word is discipline or devotion. Of course, if that's the case and I'm spirit-led, I'm not going to be brutal, I'm gonna be tender. Not going to be headstrong, I'm going to be heart-strong. I know this sounds terrible. The echo of evil may be resounding on earth. Promise from Jesus, the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. And that is why this present evil may overwhelm, but it will never overcome. Paul said in that same chapter, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What is one of the final markers of these people? It says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people turn away. A form of godliness and denying the power of godliness, it's false religion in all forms, okay? It comes dressed in all types of garments, not just robes, not just suits and ties, not just a priestly cloak, not just a cool looking pastor that you have. <laughs> I know. Let's go back to boasters, proud and haughty. Thank you. No, having, having a form of godliness but denying its power, it's false religion. It's also the epitome of virtue signaling. Do you know what that expression means when you hear somebody say they're virtue signaling? Right, it's just like affirming. It's the love is love mantra. It's, it's affirming everything and everyone because you don't want to 
offend and let's all just get along. Let's lock arms and let's just love our neighbor. But there's no talk about loving God. There's no repentance. There is no asking for forgiveness. It's virtue signaling. Now, listen, I know there are various Jesuses floating around in our world. My responsibility is to make sure you know the right Jesus. So I don't care if it's the woke Jesus or the MAGA Jesus. The Christian is called to know the biblical Jesus. Okay? So having a form of godliness but denying its power is basically having a form of godliness but not being transformed by godliness. It's external. It sounds good, it looks good, but it is not of God. So what good is it for us as Christians to virtue signal to a dying world, yep, just to get along, without pointing to the virtue of the living Lord, the only one who in the midst of this evil profile He's the only one who can offer hope and forgive sins and give us eternal life. So why do we cover this? Well, it's one in the scriptures too. It's one of the signs of our times. The spirit forewarns us to forearm us. We deal with Bible prophecy, not to scare, but to prepare. I want to make us a people not of the times. I want to be a people of truth that are for the times. We need to know the difference between good and evil. We, of course, turn away from such people, which is not ignoring what's happening around us. It's abhorring and detesting what's happening around us. That should not lead us to have haughty hearts as if we're better than the world. The Bible says, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. Right? So I'll end by saying, if you believe Jesus Christ is the Lord of lords, he's the king of kings. If you believe he is the promised Messiah who came and will come again, if you believe he is the savior of the world, if you believe that he is the only way to righteousness, if you believe he is the resurrection of life, if you believe he is the only hope in hopeless days, if you believe he's the only prince of peace in a world of false peace, if you believe that he died on the cross for you, for all of your sins, past, present, and future, and that his sacrifice was free, full, and final, if you believe that, here's the charge. Would the mercy that you know would that be equivalent to the mercy when you walk out those doors to the mercy you show? Would we be marked by the complete opposite of this long list? Because since we're not dead, we're not done. Plenty of work to do. We've heard it by God's grace tonight. Let's do it. So let me pray for us, right? Let's pray. And then I have a few announcements before dismissal. Can we pray?
So Father, I, I do know your word at times can be very heavy, but I pray that your spirit would just cause that to humble us. Would we humble ourselves under your mighty hand, your righteous hand, and allow you to lift us up. We pray that we'd be a people marked by true love. We would be a people marked by mercy. We would take you at your word. We would share your gospel with a dying world. We would be first to check our own hearts. We would be first to recognize that you've delivered us from our sin, from ourselves. You've taken us from the domain of darkness and you've transferred us into the kingdom of your son. Would we praise you for that? Would we not just sing hymns, great is your faithfulness? Would we sing to him, the one who is faithful? Thank you for this church and these people. I pray you bless us in accordance with your will. I pray a special prayer, O oh God, for every family that is represented, mothers and fathers and husbands and wives. I know families and marriages are under attack and the enemy would wanna see those units demolished, destroyed, divided. So I pray against the work of the devil, but more importantly, I pray that your work would be accomplished in the midst of all of that. This is my prayer, and it's in the name of Jesus that I ask it, amen.